We are working through the book of Revelation, and we are uh, quite halfway through. Um, and today we're going to hit a, I'd say one of the more unusual themes of the book of Revelation. It's not uh, completely unique to Revelation, uh, the idea of the Antichrist. We're looking at the rise of the Antichrist. Actually, the, the official title to today's sermon is The Day of the Lord, Global Politics, the Destruction of Babylon, and the Rise of the Antichrist. And so um, the Antichrist is a, is a theme throughout the New Testament, but really comes to a, a high point in the, the book of Revelation. And as we're going to see, it um, is, is intricately tied with government and politics and the nations of the world. Um, which um, obviously, if you have been paying any attention at all to anything related to news, um, is of pretty significant relevance for this time. Um, so I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray that God would give me um, clear words, accurate uh, words for the text, and um, a deep sensitivity in our hearts and minds to the Holy Spirit and to the gospel. Lord, we, um, we live in really challenging and, and interesting times. And uh, we here in the States, God, uh, while to some degree our suffering is nothing in comparison to suffering throughout the world, uh, we have a different type of a malaise. And it is indeed a challenge to us and possibly much more deceptive than other forms of, of attack or suffering that exists throughout the world. So God, we pray that in these times that you would help us to, to think well about your word and to think well about the times that we're in and to think well about the tasks that you've given to us and what our lives mean to you and to those who live in this world. We pray, God, that as we look at uh, some challenging texts today, challenging from what do they mean, challenging also to uh, what they are calling us to be, uh, we pray, God, that you would uh, deepen um, our knowledge and understanding of you and of your love for us and of your purposes for us and of this gospel and of your word, of your purposes and plans, and, God, of the future and of what... Uh, what will come to pass at some point. We pray, God, that um, you would work mightily and move us towards Christ, and that you would continue to press your churches to be a witness in this world as um, the name of Jesus indeed will be honored and glorified throughout all nations and on all tongues at some point. We pray, God, that you would help us as your churches to move to that end, to be faithful witnesses of your name. In your son's precious name we pray, amen. So I got up on Friday morning, pick up to get, go out and look at the newspaper real quick before I head to the gym. And uh, on the front page is obviously something about Donald Trump and the presidency and, and what's going on. And this one was particularly alarming. And I... I um, those of you that know me and have asked me about my politics and my perspectives, um, I will echo what Tim Keller has said. I am first Christian. Uh, 
and then anything else from terms of an identity uh, comes after that. And um, I'm not going to tell you anything about my voting. Um, I am not a Democrat. I am not a Republican. I'm not any of those identities, really. Um, I am not a conservative. I am not a liberal. Uh, you may hear me say things this morning that seem to be critical or that will be critical of what's going on. Uh, I'm not critical of the presidency or of the government. Um, I think historically uh, any government is going to, to some degree, serve the purposes that God has created governments for. And any government is always going to be opposed to the things that God has created governments for. So we are going to see strengths and we are going to see weaknesses in any human government. Uh, manifestations of God's common grace to government, and we're going to see manifestations of, of satanic and demonic influence and oppression and evil in any government. So it is not, uh, it is, it is, I'm not here to, um, to say things negative about the government. Um, I'm here to call attention to the church, as the scriptures do, and as the people of God are supposed to be engaged in. How are we as a church to live in this world? And so on Friday morning, I picked it up, and there, it was, I can't remember the exact headline, but... Um, it was a story about the current administration's efforts to um, re re release the limits that have been put on churches um, because of the nonprofit statuses, nonprofit status that churches hold. And so, if you're not familiar with this, um, any organization in, in the United States that gets nonprofit status, which churches are automatically engaged in. Uh, any 501c3 organization, nonprofit organization, which a church is, a, which is a, a church is, um, is prohibited from endorsing a particular candidate in campaigns. That's basically the limit, without getting into too much detail. They can talk about the issues. They can actually have candidates into their um, into the churches and to speak and, and all these kinds of things. But there can't be any formal endorsements or criticisms of of particular candidates. Um, and so that exists not just for churches, but for all nonprofit organizations, because nonprofit organizations get benefit from the government, taxpayer benefits. There are things that we are um, um, waived from, like paying taxes as an organization, uh, paying tax, property taxes as organizations to state and county and, and city governments. And so there's a whole host of things that are financially beneficial for nonprofit organizations. And so. Um, those things then, so, so nonprofit status means that to some degree the state is supporting the nonprofit organization and agrees to abide by those rules. And so I'm not in, I, I don't particularly, um, I'm not particularly concerned about the issue of nonprofit status for churches. There are some pastors that I hold. Uh, in very high regard that actually believe that that's a dangerous place for churches to be and that there should be no, pro no non-profit status for churches so that the churches will pay taxes but then the churches have the freedom to say what they want to say or not say. Or... That's not really the issue that I was concerned with. The issue that I'm concerned with is the um, increased appearance 
of conservative biblical Christianity to be influencing and engaged in, in a very significant way, um, the government of the United States of America. So I'm a history major, and uh, in my efforts and studies, um, I came across just three, two incidents, and then a third one, which is very recent, where you can see that intentional efforts by Christians to somehow use government and politics to get some power and influence and control over the state um, resulted in significant backlash from the society um, and increased opposition to Christianity as a result. And so Christians tried to make this effort that they believe would be helpful for society and it in, ended up being a very negative thing in regard to the perception of Christians in, in the world we live in. I've mentioned these before in other sermons. Uh, in the mid-1800s, there was an organization called the Society for the Suppression of Vice in New York City, started by a man named Anthony Comstock and the YMCA at the time. And so basically, the Society for the Suppression of Vice had within its legal limits um, to curb anything that was considered to be obscene. Uh, they had authority in the postal service, they had a authority in the print and publications, they had authority in the arts and the theater world, and anything that was perceived to be obscene. Um, they could uh, confiscate, arrest, put in jail, even intimate letters between a husband and wife that contained what they considered obscene material. So after several decades of this, there became a, uh, a backlash from the society against Anthony Comstock and the Society for the Suppression of, Vi of Vice. Um, and the New York Times is quoted in 1879 as in quoting people, Christians were becoming too strong and that power always begot tyranny. Christian efforts to use political power at this point led to public backlash and the formation of all of these organizations that are promoting civil liberties. You know, the ACLU started as a consequence of the Society for the Suppression of Vice and Anthony Comstock. And so conservatives consider the ACLU as a super liberal organization that's anti-Christian and anti all these things. Well, it came about because of our desire to reach in and use political power to legislate morality into the so-called Christian cause. In the 19, early 1900s, 1920s, the, uh, the uh, increase in the teaching of evolution led to, led to school districts across the country out, outlawing the teaching of evolution in the public schools, and eventually um, um, those opposed to those Christian efforts set up a kind of a well, really, uh, kind of it was a bait where they got uh, a biology teacher to teach evolution in Dayton, Ohio, um, and then a sheriff was there ready to arrest the biology teacher uh, because they wanted to press the issue legally in the courts. And so there was the famous Scopes trial. Uh, and this trial was broadcast uh, in the media across the entire Western world, all of Europe and the United States and Canada, and, um, and it and it result. So so the 
so the, the court decision came down on the side of the, quote, the Christians, uh, but the, oh, the whole scene was a, a, an international embarrassment. And really the watershed event that um, caused just this, this great decline in the reputation of Christianity in the West. A few years ago here in Minnesota, the combined efforts of the Catholics and Evangelicals to define marriage in our Constitution and forbid same-sex marriage in the state led to the passing of the first statewide vote to um, say no to that effort, which then led to the efforts to get marriage redefined in the state and same-sex marriages legalized. We're the first state to do that from a vote because it was a reaction to the efforts of the Catholics and Evangelicals um, to force this issue. Now, again, I'm not here to debate the particular issues. There are always two questions that have to be asked. And the second question is, is usually not asked. When there is something going on in our culture that, that we as Christians would consider um, morally offensive. The first question is, what is the, what is the biblical stance? What does Jesus Christ say about the particular issue? Whether it's abortion or same-sex marriage or uh, nonprofit organizations, there's always, okay, what is, the, what is the, the biblical understanding of this particular issue? And that tends to be where we fall as a people in terms of the church, Christianity. Uh, the right and the wrong, or the morality of the particular issue. But the second question that, that has to be asked, and that is rarely asked, is does the Bible say, does Jesus teach us uh, how to engage our culture on these kinds of things? Is there a way that we as a church should respond to these types of things in our country when we perceive there to be uh, moral violations? And that, I think, is actually the more important question. And typically what has happened in part, over the last, um, really, 50 years in, the, in this country is that because of our, of our decline from what I would consider uh, a natural cultural influence simply because of the history and the sociology of Christianity for the last 2,000 years, uh, when, when, when we lost all of that, that cultural and social currency as Christians in the United States, which really began uh, in the early to mid-1800s and really kind of came to a head in the 1920s, um, we, didn't know how, we didn't know what to do. We had lost our power, so to speak. And so the response was, is, was then to use the, the machinery of politics and government to once again reclaim that power. Um, my concern is that it seems that there are very immature Christians that have a, a national influence providing high-level counsel to the current administration. That is the perception. And that is not just a perception. That is the reality. I'm not going to get any names or get into any histories. But this is what is going on. The appearance, okay, 
regardless, of, I mean, there, there's, there's media, and that's a part of all of it. I know we just, again, I've got 40 minutes. <laughs> but there is the appearance of preference to Christians over other nationalities and religions. There's this push to open political activity on the part of churches. There are threats against abortion rights. I mean, you just go down the road. Again, I, I, I'm not here to talk about the particular issues. What I want to talk about and think about is what is the role that Christianity has to play in its society? And how are we being perceived in this society? There is a perception of tyranny and Christian overreach. What is of grave concern is how we are asserting influence in this culture. If the world perceives that Christians are using political and government positions to gain power for control, there will be a backlash. There always has been. This administration is short. And the reason why I'm bringing this up um, is because um, we have to think about Christ, the church, and its connections with the state because it is a really central issue in the book of Revelation. I've mentioned the movie and book Silence a few times, and in the introduction of the book, you don't pick this up in the movie, but in the introduction of the book, it tells a very important little story. It tells of early Christian missionary efforts in Japan, which at first was really welcomed by the Japanese and by the leadership and authorities in the government of Japan. But Japan grew wary of Christianity's pursuit of power. Here's a quote. Ten years after Hideyoshi's first outburst. So Hideyoshi was, uh, was the, the uh, I believe he was the emperor in Japan at the time. Is that, is that correct? He was a high-level political figure in Japan. And when they began to see that Christianity wasn't just bringing um, Christ, but it was also bringing, and this is 1600, so this is colonialism, this is, Portuguese and Spanish and Dutch and British colonies spreading throughout the world. Um, and so you have the, the states asserting power and the church is kind of tied to that effort. You know, it, it was only 1905 when France stopped paying taxes to the church. It was in the 1860s, I believe, when the United States did. Okay, so the church has been supported by the state in the West for many centuries, okay? So anyway, um, so 10 years after Hideyoshi's first outburst against Christianity, Hideyoshi's anger overflowed again. This time, so it's, he's talking about the beginnings of Christian persecution in Japan. Welcome and warm reception at first, but when the, when the pursuit of power began to be seen, the persecutions really picked up. This time it was occasioned by the pilot of a stranded Spanish ship who, in an effort to impress the Japanese, boasted that the greatness of the Spanish Empire was, all, was partly due to the missionaries who always prepared the way for the armed forces of the Spanish king. No longer was it Christ that the Japanese, that, that the missionaries to Japan were bringing. It was the missionaries were forerunners of the Spanish Empire. And that is what set off the persecutions throughout Japan, which were just terrible. 
I believe that the greatest concern, which has been steadily growing, and, and I, it seemed like, it seemed like, it seemed like the influence of the religious right was waning. It really did. To where um, this perception was decreasing and they no longer had the influence that they do. And what happened to me on Friday morning was like, they've actually accomplished their goal. They've actually accomplished the goal. Uh, Ralph Reed was on the radio Friday. I don't know if you're familiar with much of the religious right history. Ralph Reed has been a very prominent figure in that movement for the last really 30 years. And he's on the radio. And you see more evangelical leaders speaking positively of these, these things. There will be a backlash. And because of the global nature of what's happening, I think it's, it's gonna be broader. I don't know when, I don't, I'm just saying. You can, here's my point. Revelation talks about a global persecution of churches that the state is behind that the governments and nations of the world are behind. Um, you can see how the nations of the world will get to the point where they are so angry and embittered towards Christians that this kind of thing could happen. I'm not saying it's gonna happen because of the current politics and administration in America, but you can see, okay, you can see how the nations of the world will come to a place and see that Christianity is a bad thing. Behind the, I mean, it, there will be a hatred of Christ, for sure. Simply because it's Christ. And he's right, and the people of the world will love their sin, okay? There, we're, there's always going to be persecution because of that. But it will be behind the guise of, and the deception of, because you have to, one of the things you have to realize throughout Revelation is that there's a mass deception going on on be, that the whole world is, is buying into. And that deception is from the devil and the Antichrist and the forces of evil and people's own sin. And part of the deception will be Christianity and Christians are things that, are, that, that need to be destroyed because of its negative influence on society. So that's the introduction. We're going to read two chapters out of Revelation again this morning because you've got to really get the imagery, then we're just going to close up with a few points at the end. We're looking at Revelation chapter 13 and chapter 17. We've already looked at chapter 17 with Babylon. Revelation chapter 13. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave its power and his throne and great authority. Okay, so little commentary. Uh, the dragon is the devil, okay? It's personified in different ways from Genesis on. The dragon is the devil, and the beast is what the scriptures call the Antichrist. Antichrist, he is opposed to Christ. In some ways, he's going to look like Christ, he's going to smell like Christ, he's going to act like Christ, but he's opposed to Christ. He is a deceptive figure that, that is perceived to be godlike, as we will see here in a bit, 
uh, but is completely opposed to God and to Jesus Christ. And he is functioning under the authority and power of the devil. One of its heads, this beast, one of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshiped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. And it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them, and authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Okay, so what you have is a, um, and we're going to get into a little bit more detail of this later, but you have this antichrist waging war against the people of God throughout the nations of the world. And the heads, the seven heads, represent um, the totality of the kingdoms. You have the seven heads and the, the ten horns. Those are kingdoms. So you have the totality of the nations of the world, the totality of the kingdoms and rulers of the world, waging war under the power of the Antichrist, which is ultimately the power of the devil, waging war against the people of God. This isn't just some evil religion. It is the devil working through the nations of the world and the rulers of the world to destroy Jesus' people. It exercises all the authority of the beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast. Oh, excuse me, verse 11. That I saw another beast rising out of the earth, and it had two horns like the lamb, like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all of the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. So this reference to the mortal wound, the Antichrist was killed and then rose again. He literally dies and is raised again by the power of the devil. But unlike Jesus Christ, he will die again forever. The second beast is what scriptures call the false prophet, who is a person who is like an ambassador to the Antichrist. Because it's hard for somebody to proclaim your own praises, right? But if somebody is standing beside you saying, hey, nations of the world, I worship this. Why don't you join me in worshiping this? It's, it's like advertising, okay? Things don't sell themselves. They get a marketer, put some advertising behind it. That's what the false prophet's doing. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. So the, the false prophet gets the people of the world to actually 
set up a statue for the Antichrist, to worship the Antichrist, to worship the dragon. It was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. It also causes all, both great and small, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. And so here we see economic oppression. If you do not align yourself with the Antichrist, the dragon, the false prophet, and worship this statue, you are not going to be allowed to buy or sell or trade. That is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man and his number is 666. Then we move on to chapter 17. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters. The great prostitute is this, this um, image of Babylon, which is a global culture of, of wealth and prosperity and power that, re, that exists in the, 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 uh, the capitals and kings of the earth and of the, the merchants, those who buy and sell. I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, that is the Antichrist, that was full of blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not, okay, that's it, was alive, then it died, and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. So the nations and rulers of the world will come to a point where they submit their power and authority and give them to the Antichrist, the ruler of the world. 
They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them. For he is Lord of lords and King of kings. And those who are with him are called and chosen and faithful. And the angel said to me, The waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are the peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. All the people of the earth will be caught up and deceived by Mystery Babylon, this global culture of wealth and power will consume the nations of the world. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purposes by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. So eventually, like this was the second sermon in this series, so if you need a refresher, if you weren't here, go and listen to that second sermon on Babylon. And so the dragon and the Antichrist and the nations of the world utilize this, this global culture of economic security, of money, of pleasure, of wealth, to deceive the nations of the world into following them. And they, once the nations of the world have been completely captivated by it, will destroy Mystery Babylon. They will destroy this global culture of economic security and wealth and power and status because it will be the last competitor to the devil. It will be the last competitor to the Antichrist. And people will not choose between, oh, do I worship the dragon and the beast? Or am I going to worship money? Because... Money is always the greatest competitor to biblical faith. The love of money. You cannot serve both, Jesus says. Paul says that the love of money is the root of all evil. Not money, the love of it. And so the dragon and the beast, the devil and the antichrist, the nations of the world will see that the affections of the hearts of humanity lie with money. And they'll say, no, 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 we want we want the affections of the world. So they lure them in. They lure them in. And they become worshipers of the devil. Now, it's not like people are choosing to worship this nasty red beast, okay? It will be very attractive and appealing. It will make sense to the peoples of the world. And so the Antichrist is two things. The Antichrist is kind of this global force that is integrated and in bed with the political and economic systems of the world. John says in, in his letters that the Antichrist already exists and is, its force is present in the world. Okay, so you need to understand the Antichrist not just as this individual that Revelation and a lot of weird language talks about coming who's going to kill all the Christians and claim power and authority. The Antichrist is a system of false religion, of idolatry that is in bed with the nations and economic systems of the world. And as you can see, the nations and economic systems of the world increasingly becoming one, you can see the nations of the world preparing for the time where this will all make sense. And there are ambassadors to Babylon. There are ambassadors to this system. And we are all lured into thinking of its goodness. 
of its goodness. The seven heads, I said, are like the nations of the world. The ten kings are its rulers. And this final ruler, this king, will be this, this, one of the, the last kingdom, all right? The seventh head is the one to come, where this, the, the economic and political climate will be primarily characterized by this. And this ruler that will come is like the eighth. He says it's an eighth, but it is of the seven. And so there will be, the Antichrist is also a singular ruler. It seems that the text is pretty clear that there will be a singular ruler that arises from this culture that is opposed to God. And he singularly will be opposed to God and he will possess the power of the devil. He will represent the devil as Jesus represented God. He will be the anti-Christ to such extent that he performs miracles like Jesus did and even rises from the dead, which creates a huge deception across the nations of the world. This guy is one we can follow and put our trust in because look, he was killed and he has risen from the dead and he is still alive. He has great power. He can solve the problems of the world if he's risen from the dead. If he's got control of the economic and political systems of this world, he can solve our problems. And he will have a false prophet. Jesus said John the Baptist. The Antichrist will have his own prophet. And he will declare, look, how great this Antichrist is. Look at how powerful and beautiful this Antichrist is. And so it is a, it is a global economic and political system that started with Jesus' death and resurrection. There's a narrative that we're going to get to in a couple weeks that talks about the devil being destroyed at the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And at that point, Satan and the demons were cast to earth and are going to wage war against the people of God. So for 2,000 years, the Antichrist has been active as a part of this world. Christians have been killed. We as, an, as nations are lured into a global economic system. And the Antichrist is also the leader of the armies against Christ and his people. He will assemble those armies against Christ. And this is where we have the battle of Armageddon, where the armies of the Antichrist and the armies of the nations of the world will stand up against the armies of Jesus Christ, which will come in great glory, and Jesus will completely wipe out these armies. So that's next week, Armageddon. So what does this mean to us? We don't have Christian persecution in this country at this time. Thankfully. Thankfully. But I hope you can see, here's really what I'm wanting wanting us to see. Um, The future holds at some point a time where the nations of the world will be killing Christians. The nations of the world. Not just some obscure nations around the world that we consider undeveloped or uncivilized. The nations of the world, under its, under its rulers that are under the control of the Antichrist and the devil, will come to a point where in a uniform and unified way, they will be killing Christians. 
And what I, what I, the reason why I'm connecting this to our current situation is because I think you can see why that would come to pass. There has always been a backlash against Christian efforts to control politically. Tim Keller said it is, gonna, it is extremely hard to do evangelism in our culture because it is the first culture that has arisen with its primary purpose to be not like Christians. It is a, the culture is based upon our rejection of Christianity. That's where we're at in Europe and in America. These cultures have come out of Christendom and they've said, no. And that is what we are called to witness in. We're called to be witnesses. The whole, one of the big themes for the churches in Revelation is that we are witnesses. That means we are holding up the name of Jesus Christ. That means we are living out the teachings of Jesus Christ in our world. So as witnesses of, of Jesus Christ, we have to resist the lure of money to be our love. We have to resist the lure of sexual immorality to be our love. We have to resist the lure of power to be our love. We may not be suffering from persecution yet, but the challenges remain. The challenges remain. Uh, the big message to the churches, be a witness, come out of Babylon. The pursuit of financial security as your love will make you selfish. And you may have said the prayer, and you, you may believe that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life that was established before the foundations of the world. Those, who, those whom Christ has called, their names were written in the book of life before the foundations of the world. That is crazy. Those who are called to Christ, it's not just saying a prayer. It is believing that Jesus Christ is Lord and identifying yourself with him and his purposes, his calling, his name, and that inherently is also a decision to follow him to death and to carry the cross just like Jesus did which means you are not going to let the love of money become your love. You're going to fight it. You're going to recognize it's there. If you love money as a Christian, you will be selfish. You will not give to the people that are in need around you. You will not give to the ministry of the church. You will set up a security circumstance in your life where money is providing your security because that's what you love. If you pursue sexual fulfillment, it will turn you cold and lonely. Babylon is money, sex, and power. That's Babylon. And all three of those things are integrated and very enticing. What did, uh, oh, it's been a little while since the season was over. And I mean, most of you probably don't watch House of Cards. It's pretty dark. But uh, what's, the pres what's the guy's name? Kevin Spacey's character? What's his last name? Underwood, what a great name. Um, he says as president, because he's always talking to the camera, like giving his little perspective on really what's going on, which shows his heart. He said, everything's about sex. People do everything for sex, except for sex. Sex is about power. 
He has got such insight into human nature throughout the show, it's, it's pretty incredible. These things are tied. Money, power, sexuality. If you pursue power over all of your life, you will push away from community because power is ultimately the desire for control. I'm gonna control everything in my life so that nothing can interfere with what I wanna do and what's gonna keep me safe and secure. And let me tell you, if you have people in your life, and it starts with family, it starts with family. You know, and before you get married, if you're married or wanna get married, but if, before then, you're in a family, and by the time you're 16, 17, 18, maybe 13 or 14, you're like, you know, this family's driving me nuts, I need to get out of here. I was that way when I was 17 and a senior in high school. I was like, I love my family, but I need to get out of here. <laughs> Man is going off to school in February, and we love her, and she loves us, but there's little signs here and there on both sides. It's time for her to get out of here because she's become her own person. That's great. But she's not going too far. She's going to St. Olaf, which we found out yesterday, so we're really happy about that. People take away our control. Because if we follow Jesus and love them and serve them as he's commanded, that means we're gonna have to bear their burdens, which means it's gonna cost us our time, it's gonna cost us our money, it's gonna cost us our security, it's gonna cost us our power. You cannot follow Jesus and pursue power and love it alone. If you love Jesus, you're gonna lose your money, you're gonna lose your power, you're gonna lose your security, and you're gonna live for him, you're gonna die for him. We are to pursue the doing of good. We are to pursue service, which is in contrast to what the, the presence of Christianity is in our culture. Titus says that we are to live and follow Jesus, and if we follow Jesus and mind our own business like it teaches in Thessalonians, to mind our own affairs, to work hard with our hands, and to meet pressing needs which had a specific inst- a characterization in that culture and in that language, meant that you, kinda, you, re- you m- removed yourself from what it considered to be social and political activism. It's a whole other set of sermons. He said, follow Jesus, mind your own business, work hard, meet pressing needs, be a witness to the world around you. The word of God will not be reviled, it says. You will give your, no reason for your enemies to say anything bad about you, and you will make the teachings of Jesus Christ attractive, which is going to draw people to you. Because we have to stand in contrast to the perversions of Pharisaic religion, Pharisaic Christianity, deceptive versions of Christianity in this world. And if we're, if we're, if we're looking to Revelation and to, to Jesus Christ is to understand what is it going to look like with seven of the churches, of the seven churches that are in Revelation, five are compromised. The two faithful churches are small and poor and persecuted. We have to be Jesus churches, and we have to give up these things. We may be small, we may be poor, we may be persecuted, but we've got to follow Jesus and we've got to get out of Babylon. Let me pray. Lord God, we live in serious times, and although the... uh, the skits on Saturday Night Live are really funny. We don't see it as very funny in terms of what's going on in this world and the people that are hurting, uh, the name of Christ that is being abused.
and the purposes of Christ that are being maligned and the, the unfolding of what we could see somewhere down the road as the red carpet for the coming of the Antichrist. So God, we ask that you would strengthen us. We, we are not opposed to the fulfillment of your purposes. We know there are dark times ahead. If not for our generation, maybe the generation to follow or the generation to follow after that or the generation to follow after that. But God, we recognize and know that it is not for us to pursue a place of power to prevent that from happening. For we can see, as your word says, you appoint the, the kings of the earth for the accomplishment of your purposes and sometimes you use the Nebuchadnezzars of the world to accomplish your purposes in your people. God, we wait for the coming of Christ. In your son's name, amen.